Well, it is really good to be back. Can I just say, it is so much nicer preaching to some faces, even if the faces have masks on them. They are a whole lot more um, expressive than this little round cam- camera lens I've been preaching to for the last three months. So it's, uh, it's great to be here. Uh, now, some of you know I quite like uh, swimming laps at our local pool. It's good for my fitness. It's good for my back. And can I just say, it's also good for my ego in the sense that it keeps me humble. I'm not very fast, so when all the little eight-year-olds swim past me in the lane next to me, I'm reminded that I'm never going to be an Olympic swimmer. But then again, almost no one will. Almost no one will become an Olympic swimmer. It's the same for all those little soccer players you see running around local parks. Almost none of them will make a career out of football. Almost certainly they won't be the next Tim Cale or Samantha Kerr. Despite what their parents like to think. Despite the parents spending thousands of dollars uh, on uniforms and coaching clinics and uh, rep team fees so that little Johnny or little Jemima can get the best possible opportunity to be a superstar. But the reality is, of course, the soccer world, the competitive swimming world, it's a whole lot bigger than they realise. There are literally thousands of kids who are better than their child. What those parents need is a dose of reality to bring them down to earth. Uh, Seeing the big picture takes away conceit. Seeing the big picture takes away conceit. Now, seeing that big picture is what Paul wants his Roman readers to do here in chapter 11. In particular, he's thinking about the non-Jews in that church, the Gentiles. He wants them to see the big picture of God's salvation plan so they won't become proud. You can see it there in verse 25. I'd encourage you to, to have your Bibles open and follow along. Verse 25, it's really the key that unlocks the whole chapter. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited Israel's experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Now we'll get to the second half of that verse in a minute, but just in the first half, notice that ignorance leads to conceit. Not knowing the true situation leads to bragging. The flip side of that is that knowledge, seeing the big picture, seeing where you fit, leads to seeing yourself realistically. And that stops conceit. Now, he repeats that command in verses 18 and 20. He says to the Gentiles, don't boast. Uh, And in verse 20, do not be arrogant or or don't think of yourself highly, but be afraid. What is it that will keep the Gentiles from pride is knowing about the mystery of the spread of the gospel of Jesus. How God's people used to be just Jews But his plan had always been that through Jesus, the Gentiles would be included in God's people as well. That God would justify anyone who trusted him. Now that's been Paul's constant message through the whole letter. He's been banging banging on about it right from the start. You might remember back in chapter chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of Everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. 
he said a bit further on in chapter 10. We saw this last week. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We see it all the way through Romans, right to the end, almost the last few verses. Chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who's able to establish uh, by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. Why? So that all nations might believe and obey him. That's the mystery. That's what used to be secret, but not anymore. God's offer of salvation was always much too big to simply be confined to one nation. Because of Jesus, it's now available to the whole world. Now that's great news for the Gentiles. But the problem for Paul, and we saw it last week in chapters 9 and 10, was that alongside the Gentiles accepting Jesus there were all these Jews who were rejecting him. And Paul's been addressing this question of whether the blame is with God, whether his promises to Israel have somehow failed. And he's still on that topic here at the start of chapter 11. So have a look at verse 1. Did God reject his people? Has he changed his mind? Has he moved on to plan B? Well, Paul's answer is, by no means. Just because most of Israel are not believers, that doesn't mean that God has rejected them. His first point is that their unbelief is partial. Their their unbelief is partial. Uh, And verse 1, exhibit A, Paul says, look at me. I'm a Jew, through and through. God hasn't rejected me. Uh, Or verse 2, another example. Back in Elijah's time, Elijah thought he was all alone, but God promised him that he had kept a remnant of faithful Jews together with Elijah. There was a fraction, verse 4. Verse 5, Paul moves on to his presence. Same thing now when you look at the Jews. There is a remnant chosen by grace. Out of the whole nation of Israel, he's chosen some but hardened others. It's not based on them, it's completely up to God's choice. God doesn't reject those who are truly his people. So firstly, Israel's rejection of Jesus is partial. Secondly, from verse 11, we see that his, uh, Israel's unbelief is purposeful. God's got a plan. Paul is confident that this isn't the end of the road for his fellow Jews. Look at verse 11. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. He's confident that this is only a temporary setback. At the moment, they're not interested. But there are better things ahead. It often happens with God that he uses human disobedience to actually further his plans. So see there in verse 11, they haven't fallen beyond recovery. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. God is using Israel's unbelief to bring about his good purposes. Now notice the three steps there in verse 11. 
Israel reject Jesus. So Paul takes the message to the Gentiles who accept it and are saved. So three, Israel become jealous of the Gentiles. Jealous of what? Well, he, he doesn't spell out what they'll be jealous of. Perhaps the joy of forgiven sins. Perhaps the power over sin that the Holy Spirit brings. That's what he was comparing in chapters 7 and 8 of Romans. Romans 7 uh, is the Jew who, who wants to keep God's law, but just doesn't have the power to do it. Romans 8 is the Christian who's not condemned because he's in Christ Jesus. He's been set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life. Perhaps the Jew of Romans 7 is jealous of the Christian of Romans 8. But the point of the jealousy, whatever the jealousy is for, the point of the jealousy is so that the Jews will come to know Jesus as well. That's God's purpose in Israel's unbelief. A bit further down, verse 13 into 14, Paul says he makes much of his ministry... He works hard at his ministry. Why? Verse 14. In the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. That's what energises Paul's mission to the Gentiles. Strangely enough, is that his fellow Jews would also come to know Jesus. And then Paul's big end game is that there'll be one united people of God Jew and Gentile. But here's Paul's practical point. You see, he's not just speculating theology. There's actually an application to his truth. So what all of that means, verse 18, there's no reason for the Gentiles to boast. Seeing God's big picture takes away conceit. Seeing God's big picture takes away conceit. Verse 17, he talks about the Jews who are an olive tree. God has snapped off some of the branches because they haven't believed in Jesus. But then God comes and he grabs some other branches and he grafts them in to the original olive tree. They're, they're the Gentiles. God has joined, joined the Gentiles into God's people and now they're thriving, they're healthy. It's not natural, but it works because God has done the joining. These are God's people, Gentiles, grafted through faith into the Jewish people. Now that's the history, but verse 18, he gets personal. Don't boast. There's nothing clever or special about you. You're a branch that God has grafted in. Don't be conceited. You didn't do anything. God did. He says it again in verse 20. Granted, they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith... Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. You are joined by grace, so don't think you're better than those who are not joined. That's his message to the Gentiles. Now, now this is especially relevant for the church in Rome. Uh, because of the recent history of what ha what, what's happened in Rome. Uh, you see, in AD 49, the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome. That, that included the Christian Jews as well. We, we can see that from Acts 18, where we realise, uh, where we read about Aquila and Priscilla, two Jewish Christians who have been expelled from Rome and they've ended up in Corinth. 
And so what happens to the church in Rome? Well, there's only Gentiles left, so the Gentiles take over the running of the church. Now, no doubt things would change. But when Claudius died in 54 AD, five years later, the Jews and the Jewish Christians, they can return. And the Jewish Christians, they turn up to church on that first Sunday back and perhaps they expect to to take over again and they expect the uh, the, the things to be the way they were before. But uh, probably they weren't the same. I want you to just imagine that everyone over 50 had to leave this church for five years. Now, put your hand up if you're over 50. Uh, Hands down, put your hand up if you're under 50. Okay, so all of those people who are under 50, you get to run the church for five years. Now, imagine that five years later we come back, what's church going to look like? Now, I reckon there's going to be some significant changes. And we might be a little bit, hmm, I'm not sure that's what I like. Now, if that's what the situation was for people who are all from the same culture, can you imagine what it would be like for Jews and Gentiles? But that's the sort of thing that's been happening. And Paul is trying to calm down this Jew versus Gentile. His message is, uh, Jew and Gentile, you're all one in Christ. Paul's saying to those Gentile Christians, don't be conceited just because the Jewish nation are not included yet. He's helping them to see the big picture, what God's got planned. Wild branches shouldn't boast over the trimmed branches. Verse 20, they shouldn't be arrogant. He says they should be cautious. If God has trimmed off natural branches, he's not going to have any trouble at all trimming off the grafted branches. So you need to be careful, don't be arrogant. Or to flip it around, if God can graft you in a wild branch, he can much more easily graft back in a natural branch. He can bring the Jews back into God's people. That's down in verse 24. Don't assume that the church is always going to be dominated by the Gentiles. And so we come to verse 25, that one we read earlier, the key that unlocks the whole chapter. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. God's plan is that all of his elect Gentiles will come to salvation and that that process will make Israel jealous. And then verse 26 says, and so, or as a result, all Israel will be saved. Full number of Gentiles and all Israel. Now what's all Israel mean? I don't think it means every single person of Jewish descent. I think it means all of the elect Jews will come to Jesus and trust him, those God has chosen. And the result will be one big, chosen, united people of God, Jew and Gentile. Now Paul's believing for that future, but he agrees at the moment things are looking pretty discouraging. And probably 2,000 years later I would say we're still waiting to see a large number of Jewish people becoming Christians. But the work of people like Jews for Jesus is trying to undo that future. 
Paul's trusting that in God's timing, Jews will become Christians too. And he trusts it because he says God's promises don't have an expiry date. Verse 29, he says God's gifts and God's call are irrevocable. Now, irrevocable, it's not a word we use that often. I have to look it up just to be sure. God's promises are binding. They're permanent. They're effective. They don't have a use-by date. You can trust him. As long as time goes on, those promises stand. And so in the meantime, as we're waiting for God's irrevocable promises to come true, we are to anticipate that future united people of God. We are to live today united as we will be then. We are to be humble towards one another and not be proud. As he moves into chapter 12, he makes that attitude practical. Humility and love, it's not just a head thing, it it affects the way we treat one another. So as we move into chapter 12, we'll look at chapter 12 more next week, but notice especially verse 3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God's given you. See the big picture. See where you fit. Don't be conceited. God's cut off Jewish branches to graft in new Gentiles. But that's by grace, so don't boast. As chapter 12 goes on, that'll show itself. Thinking of yourself in a a sober way, it'll show itself in how you use your gifts for others. Uh, From verse 9, it'll show itself in sincere love. Into chapter 13, uh, he says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. You can't pay that off. Chapter 14, verse 13, stop passing judgment on one another. And finally into chapter 15, summing up a whole lot of practical teaching with these words, verse 7, accept one another, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And he's not talking about one another generally. Look at how he goes on. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Both of you accept one another. You are both part of God's new people. You're both part of God's plans. Rejoice together. Now that's the same message for us 2,000 years later and many thousands of kilometres away. Accept one another. Aussie or other, young or old. Accept one another, rich or poor, married or single. Accept one another, Bible-trained or beginner. Accept one another, children or adult, blue-collar or white-collar. Accept one another, vaccinated or unvaccinated, cautious or brave. There's no place for arrogance or judgmentalism. There's no place for comparing or measuring ourselves against others. We are not us and them, we're one in Christ. 
Accept one another as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Don't boast, don't be arrogant. Think of yourself with sober judgment. And just to reinforce the message, Paul finishes these three difficult passages with a wonderful doxology. Rejoicing in and worshipping God for his incomprehensible wisdom and knowledge and purposes. There is much in these chapters that we don't understand. There is much in God's ways that we don't understand as they describe God's ways. But God understands all of that. So that's okay, isn't it? We don't understand him, but, but he's got it. But I want you in particular to notice how verse 36 finishes. Why is God so worthy of praise? For or because from him and through him and to him are all things. He is the source of everything. From him is everything. He's the agent of everything. Through him are all things. And he's the focus and the goal of everything. To him are all things. You're not the centre of the universe. God is the centre of the universe. You're not the centre of this church. God is the centre of this church. To him are all things. It's not to you are all things. You have nothing to be conceited about. You see, seeing the big picture takes away conceit. It's to him and not you that the glory be forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see you. For to you belong all glory and praise. Help us to praise and glorify and honour you for your inexpressible and incomprehensible majesty and power and might. Amen.